We have the potential today of having a uh, quite controversial sermon. It's one of those things we're not talking about human sexuality today. We're not talking about marriage and divorce or abortion or anything like that. But what we're talking about is government and what we believe about government and what the Bible teaches about government. You might say, well, Stephen, why is that controversial? And it's controversial because in our society... We have tied together religion and politics together in an unhealthy way. I've heard it said oftentimes throughout my life, Christians say something along the lines of something this, it is impossible to be a Christian and be a Democrat. And just two weeks ago, I heard a youth say the exact same thing, not in our body, but in a different one, where they were saying it is impossible for someone to be a Christian and be a Republican. These types of statements play with the line of adding something to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we're saying you have to believe and you have to act this political way in order to be in the household of faith. And Paul warns us in the book of Galatians that we ought not do this type of thing. But why do we do it? And one reason why I think we do this unhealthy union of of politics and religion is because in our culture and in our society today, politics has become the new religion. That over the course of time, as Christianity's influence in our society has waned, it's not that we have become a less religious people as Americans. Rather, we've just shifted our religious fervor to something else. And what we've shifted our religious fervor to is to our politics. In 2001, the Atlantic had an article called America Without God. And this is is what they said. They said, as Christianity's hold has weakened in America, ideological intensity and fragmentation has risen. American faith, it turns out, is as fervent as ever. It's just that it was once religious belief has been now channeled into political belief. Political debates over what America is supposed to mean have taken on the character of theological disputations. This is what religion without religion looks like. Well, you people used to say, well, you're a heretic if you break this theological tenet now is something along the lines of just saying you are un-American. And that's the the heresy of the new religion. There's no doubt that our faith in Jesus Christ should inform all of our civic duty. That our faith should inform our political views and our understanding. But if it is true that the, the new religion of our culture and society today is politics, then we have to be very careful about a syncretism where we have this unholy union between our faith and our politics. I fear that this could be a sermon. I, th- I, think, I think one pastor called sermons like these space makers where you're just like people, people leave as a result of it and create space for more people to come. Uh, It has a potential of being something like that. 
even already, I might have lost some of you because you're like, man, I've, I've said stuff like this before. Of it's impossible to be a Christian and a Democrat or a Christian and a Republican. But stay with me. Because I think what Jesus talks about in Luke chapter 20, verses 20 through 26, Jesus shows us a way to approach the government. And Jesus shows us a way to approach politics. The difficulty for us is trying to figure out what that looks like on a very applicational level. Whenever we look at Luke chapter 20, what we find is the authorities in Jerusalem, the religious authorities in Jerusalem, trying to trap Jesus, trying to get him to say something that is theologically incorrect so that he could be discredited among the people. But the problem is, is they can't do it. They can't find a way to, to entrap Jesus on a theological issue. So they try a new tactic in Luke chapter 20. And what they do is they send out spies. They send out operatives trying to entrap Jesus, not theologically, but politically. These spies come to Jesus with flattery and they say, teacher, we know that you teach the truth of God, that you're, you don't show partiality. We need your help in answering this political question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Or should we withhold these taxes from Caesar? What these people were doing is essentially trying to put Jesus in one camp or the other. Jesus, are you going to be Republican or are you going to be Democrat? And what Jesus does in Luke chapter 20 is he says, I'm not playing your games. I'm not playing your games. Rather, I'm going to show you a third way. Jesus said, show me a denarius. A denarius was Roman money. It was about a day's wages. And notice all these people were asking Jesus a question. Is it lawful to, to pay taxes to Caesar? But they all have this coin in their pockets, right? They're already made their own personal decisions of what they're going to do. But they pull out a coin and Jesus says, Who's, whose image is on this coin? And they say, well, it's Caesar's. Jesus turns to them and says, well, then give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And give to God the things that are God's. Today, what we want to do is we want to take that statement, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and give to God the things that are God's. And we want to look at that as the third way of, of approaching government and approaching politics, approaching authority. So we'll begin with the first half of the statement, give unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. What is government for the New Testament's pretty clear what government's for. This is what the Apostle Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 14. Submit to every human authority. Submit to every human authority because of the Lord, whether to the emperor as a supreme authority or governors as to those sent out by him to punish those that do what is evil and to praise those to do what is good. What this verse is essentially saying is that God has established governments in order to keep an orderly society. One of the worst things in the world, even worse than a corrupt government, is a place in a society that has no government. 
What's worse than a corrupt government is anarchy, where everyone does what is right in their own eyes, and everyone lives at danger of those who have the most strength and the most power. This does not mean that every government is good. We live in a world that has fallen, that has been corrupted. And so governments are fallen and corrupted just like everything else. And I think it's even fair to say that some governments are better than other governments. I might be partially biased, but I like our constitution. I appreciate the fact that God has placed me in America at this day and age. Because I think it is a good form of government that is better than many options. Even when I think, what's well, anywhere else in the world I'd want to go to? The answer is always no. I'm thankful for the government that we have. But even wicked governments want order and society where their authority is, don't they? Even wicked governments want order in their society. So for Christians who live under evil and oppressive governments, they are still called to submit to their civil authorities. Why? Because the civil authorities are still trying to give order to that society. What belongs to government? Jesus said to give unto Caesar the things that are Caesar, give unto God the things that are God's. So we have to ask the question, what belongs to Caesar? The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 13 says this, Pay your obligations to everyone, taxes to those whom you owe taxes, tolls to whom you owe tolls, respect to those you owe respect, honor to those you owe honor. So if we were to just break this down and say, all right, what do we owe the government? At a very base level, what every Christian owes the government is taxes. That if the government demands taxes, we pay the taxes, And you might say, well, that just takes it out of my salary. I don't have to worry about that. It's done. But many of us work in occupations where we might be paid by check or by cash, whether you're a waiter or a waitress or in construction or or in some some other uh, occupation where it's easy to say, well, we just won't claim that. But we are called to be people who pay our taxes because the government does fulfill necessary duties. And we are called to honor the government by paying our taxes. We are called not only to pay our taxes, but we are called to be people who keep laws. That the people of God should be people who submits to the human authorities by obeying laws. And this is hard, isn't it? Because I think many people, especially in Texas, we just kind of have this libertarian, I'm going to do what I want to do. I am my own government unto myself, uh, and I'll keep the laws that I like. But we're called to be people who obey the laws of our government. We are called in Romans chapter 13, verse 7, to honor the government, to honor every human authority. And it's important to realize that we can honor a government and an authority even if we disagree with that government. We are called to pray for our authorities, even if we disagree with our authorities. I'm reminded of one other thing that we ought to be owing our government, and that is goodness. 
that we ought to be a people who are here for the welfare of our community. That's blessing our community. And so we owe our community goodness. Reminded of, of whenever Babylon attacked Jerusalem and defeated that kingdom of Israel. And then all these, uh, all these new refugees from Israel were taken captive to foreign lands. And we have these stories of them underneath Babylon and then later on under Persia. And whenever there's this, this, uh, this wise man, this leader named Daniel, was under the rule of Persia, what we find are that the other Persians around Daniel, they really don't like Daniel. Because Daniel has this sway, this respect, this positional authority, this, this authority based off his success and wisdom. And it says this in Daniel chapter 6. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find grounds for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Oh, that that would be said of the church of Jesus Christ in America. That there are people who give honor where honor is due, taxes where taxes is due. They keep the law. They have this goodness where they are here for the welfare of their communities. And when the world looks at us, they would say, we can find no fault against them. Except we can find fault in that we disagree with the law of their God. There are going to be places where we disagree with our society due to the law of our God. Our high view of marriage, our high view of life, our high view of sexuality as given to us by God at birth. There are going to be many ways that our society looks at us and condemns us. But may it only be at places where they disagree with the word of God. But rather we are showing our goodness and our kindness in this world as part of our witness. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. So how do we live this out applicationally? The way that we live out what we owe to Caesar applicationally is that we are to be good citizens. We can't say, well, I would be a good citizen, but our government is so corrupt and so messed up, and I disagree with them so much. Before we go there, I just want to pause and remember the government that Jesus said this to. Do you recall when Jesus was born, what happened? That the king of the day goes into Bethlehem, killing every child two years old and younger. That Jesus had to flee to Egypt for the safety of his own life. And Jesus is saying, Give to Caesar that which belongs to Caesar. And Peter and Paul are saying, submit to every human authority. Remember, Jesus said this about Caesar when what would happen just a few days later? But Jesus would be unjustly arrested, unjustly beaten, unjustly crucified by the very government he said to support and honor. We do not have to agree with the government to honor the government. We don't have to agree with the government to give the government what they owe, taxes and law-keeping and honor and prayer. 
Paul wrote Romans chapter 13, whenever Emperor Nero was in charge. And what would Emperor Nero do? He would behead Paul. And he would do a systematic persecution against Christians throughout the empire. The apostle Peter, who wrote 1 Peter chapter 2, would be crucified upside down. And these are the people saying, submit to the government, honor the government, give to Caesar that which belongs to Caesar. So our disagreement with what the government does does not give us the right to not give them what they are due. So we honor the government, we pray for the government. When I say pray for the government, we do pray for wisdom. We pray that they would pursue godliness. We pray that they would come to know Christ. I knew, I knew a church one time, they said, man, we're praying for the president, but we're only praying imprecatory psalms. Uh, <laughs> and if you, know, if you know what an imprecatory psalm is, like, oh my gosh, it's like, oh, okay. Uh, but it's like, let's, let's pray for their good, that they would come to know Christ if they don't know Christ, that they would submit to the will of God, that we would have an orderly and just and good society. That's what we pray for. We apply this text by submitting to every human authority. Notice it says every human authority. So if it is a government law, we submit to the law. If you're in the army, you submit to your officers. If you're a teacher, you submit to your administrators. If you're just on another job, you submit to supervisors or foremen. If you're a child, you submit to your parents. But God has placed authorities over us that we should submit to them. I think there's this general principle that whenever we honor an authority, whenever we are good underneath an authority and we take care of our own business, you know what authorities oftentimes do? Oftentimes, they forget about you. I remember one time as a youth pastor, I had, had a student, this good kid, really enjoyed him, very personable, very likable, but he had a little bit of a rebellious attitude. And he had a little bit of a rebellious stance against his parents, always pushing the limits, always breaking their rules. And you know what had happened the more they did this? The parents just tightened up all those rules and became more constrictive and more restrictive. And the more they became more restrictive, he became more rebellious. And I remember talking with the students saying, listen, are your current tactics working? Like sneaking out of the house breaking the rules, yelling at your parents. Is that working for you? He said, well, no, not really. I said, well, why don't you try a new tactic? Why don't you try to respect your parents? Why don't you try to follow the rules? Go above and beyond, not even to get close to the lines that you, they have set for you, but, but keeping the letter and the spirit of what they've called you to do. And you do that for a long while and you see what will happen. That the more you do good, the more you respect them, the more freedom they will give you. I think that there is a principle in here that's not always true, but it's generally true. That if you're in a position of authority, you don't spray something with water that's not on fire. But what you want to do is where there's a fire, you got to attend to it. And if something is working well over here, you leave it well enough alone. 
So as people of God, whenever we submit to the government, whenever we keep the laws, whenever we are looking out for the welfare of the community, we don't do it so the government will leave us alone, but oftentimes it's a good byproduct. And whether you're in the army or in, uh, in, in the school system or in medicine or in any other occupation, the same principle applies, that if we take care of our business, it oftentimes makes for a more peaceful life. And I think that leads us to another application that one of the things we need to do as Christians to live this truth out is to live and to aim to live a quiet life. I taught at a sixth grade camp retreat a couple weeks ago. They, they heard way too much of me as, as sixth graders, but I, it was very interactive. So I, was, I, was, I remember asking them this question. I said, all right, all right, guys. And girls, what, what does success look like in life? And this group of about 30, what are they, 11-year-olds said, well, this is what success looks like. Being wealthy, having a bunch of stuff. Literally, the words came out of one student's mouth. Being perfect. Um, and Elon Musk. <laughs> and I'm thinking, that's success? Like being perfect, being rich, and being like Elon Musk. As far as I know, there's only one Elon Musk in the world, right? But their view and understanding of success is being so rich and so successful and in having such a large platform that everyone else can see you. And that's what's viewed as success. Where in Scripture, what is viewed as a success is working with your own hands, providing for yourself and your own family and for those around you. And to a large extent, living unknown. Think about the freedom and the weight that can be lifted off of your shoulders if you said, my aim in life is to live a quiet and simple life. Life. The Apostle Paul, book of 1 Thessalonians, says this. Uh, this is 11 and 12. I'm going to start reading earlier back in verse 9. This is what he says. About brotherly love, you don't need me to write to you because you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. In fact, you are doing this toward all the brothers and sisters in the entire region of Macedonia. And then we're picking up on the screen here. It says, but we encourage you, brothers and sisters, to do this even more, to seek to live a quiet life. To, I love this next line. To mind your own business, to work with your own hands as we commanded you, so that you may behave properly in the presence of outsiders and not be dependent on anyone. You want to know what God's will for your life is? To live a quiet life, to mind your own business, to work with your hands, to love the brothers and the sisters in Christ. That's God's will for your life. Notice what's required to do those things. It's not a huge platform and is not wealth. We need to change the way that we view success. That simplicity and a quiet life is how Scripture views success. 
You say, well, Stephen, what does this have to do with how we view the government? And I think if the government and politics is our new religion, I think activism are the new sacraments. That whenever we have tragedies across America, what we are called to do is all to to come up to arms and to solve every world problem. But what scripture calls us to do is to lead a quiet life, to mind our own business, and to take care of the community that's around us. I say this because we had a tragedy in New York, in Buffalo, New York, um, earlier this month. And I had a pastor friend get on social media and he said, if all you are doing is saying you're praying for the people of New York, you're not doing enough. And I'm thinking, I disagree with you on a couple different levels. On one level, I think you're not giving enough credit to prayer. Because to prayer means that we are going to the throne room of the eternal, all-powerful God who, who has the power to do all things. And secondly, there's this idea where we have to solve the world's problems, but really what we need to solve are the problems right around us. If you want to solve the problems of racism, be loving and inclusive around you. You don't have to change your profile picture. You don't have to make comments online. You don't even have to put a bumper sticker on. But you love people of other races around you, treating them with a dignity and respect that they are given by God. You want to solve any issue. You don't have to go outside to do it, but you do it in your own community. You stand up for what is right, but you can also stay out of drama. We give to Caesar that which belongs to Caesar. Honor, respect, law-keeping, but we also must give to God that which belongs to God. I love the imagery that Jesus used. He pulls out a coin And he said, whose inscription is on this coin? And they said, well, it's Caesar's inscription upon this coin. And he said, then give to Caesar that which belongs to Caesar. And he says, give to God that which belongs to God. Tell me this, where is God's image inscribed? On us. We can give taxes to Caesar We can give honor and law-keeping and goodness to Caesar. But ultimately, everything we have and everything we are belongs to God. Everything in this world declares the glory of our God. Even when we honor the government, listen to what he says in Romans chapter 13 again. Let everyone submit to the governing authorities. Why? Since there is no authority except from God. The authorities that exist are instituted by God. 
So then the one who resists authority is opposing God's command, and those who oppose it will bring on judgment them on themselves. In the book of 1 Peter, it says, Submit to every human authority. Why? Because of the Lord. Our ultimate authority belongs to God. And one of the big questions that people ask is they'll say, well, what about whenever the law of God comes into conflict with the law of man? And when the law of God comes into conflict with the law of man, every time we must submit to the law of God. Reminds me of the other popular story in the book of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when King Nebuchadnezzar made an image, an idol of himself, And he said, listen, whenever the music plays, I want you to bow down to my statue and worship me. And if you disobey, you'll be thrown into this furnace over here. And so all of a sudden, the musicians start up their song. They're playing the jig, and everyone starts to bow down. But the people of God, represented by Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they don't bend their knee. So the king says, whoa, 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 hold up, hold up, hold up here. And walks up to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and says, guys, I I don't know if you, you heard, but like, we started playing the music. And, and when we play the music, you're supposed to bow down and worship me. Just wanted to clear that up because I like you guys. And what did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say? They said, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, if you're going to throw us into the fiery furnace, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image you have set up. When the law of God and the law of man come into conflict, we always bow our knee to our God. When our society says that this evil thing is good, And it's in conflict with the word of God. We say, no, we will not agree with that. We will not submit to it. But we ourselves will follow the law of God. How do we live this out? How do we apply this to our life? One of the things that we need to do is make sure that we stand firm on the word of God. We have to make sure that our politics and what we believe politically is informed and formed by the word of God in our faith. That we are first and foremost Christians under his word rather than members of a political party. We have to be able to be a prophetic voice in whatever political party you're in. Where if your political party is wrong on an issue, that we have the boldness to say, We're wrong on this issue. But both political parties have this anathema where they say, if you're not all with us, then you're part of the problem. We have to be okay with being part of the problem. Because if our political party is wrong in some area, because they are combating the word of God, then they're wrong. We have to make sure that our hope is in Christ, formed by the word of God, and that we're not placing undue hope in politics. 
as an artist said, there has never been a savior on Capitol Hill. And I think it's interesting that both political parties within the last few presidents have both promoted men and spoke of them in these messianic terms. We will never have a savior on Capitol Hill because our savior is on Golgotha. And he is the one we bend our knee to. He is the one that we worship. He is the one that we bow down to. He is the one that sets our agenda for us. So we stand firm on the word of God. We stand firm on our conscience. I think this is important for our day today because there are many things that have come up within the last few years that are conscience issues. One example is vaccines. That some people looked at the vaccine mandates and they say, this is great. I'm glad there's a vaccine. And so they took it. Other people looked at the vaccines and they said, I disagree with the vaccines of how they were made or how they're promoted or how they're mandated. And for them, it was a sin to take the vaccine. We have to be a people that allows the body of Christ to make conscience decisions. That if it is a sin to a brother and sister in Christ to do something, then we say, don't do it. Follow your conscience. But we also have to be a place where the same members of the same body can have different conscience issues, but they are still within the body of Christ. We should be a place where a person can vote Republican and be welcomed into the body of Christ. We should be a place where a person votes Democrat and be welcomed into the body of Christ if that's what their conscience leads them to vote. That there is not this extra gospel requirement to be a part of our body, but only the law of Christ and only the gospel of Christ. I think finally... The final application for living this out before all of our kids are completely going insane outside (laughs) is as the people of God, we need to be a hopeful and a joyful people. I had a longtime friend come visit our house yesterday. Uh, They live in New Jersey now. And we just don't get to talk often. They live northeast. We live here, live here in Texas. But they were visiting family. So we got them for like three or four hours. And when they came for three or four hours, uh, we were able to talk politics and theology and, and history. And it's a lot of fun. But one of the statements he made is, Stephen, I feel like over the last seven years, you've become cynical, like politically. It's like, are you Republican? Are you Democrat? No, no, I'm, I'm just purely cynical. Um, <laughs> And I think, that's not good. And it was a little flare that went up in my own mind where I'm like, I've got to analyze my heart. I've got to consider my heart because what the people of God should be, regardless of the government, regardless of politics, is we should be a hopeful and a joyful people. Why? Because our hope is not in a government fixing all the problems in the world. Our hope is in a king and a kingdom. 
And when that king comes again and rules on his throne, what we will have is the perfect government who works out his authority and justice and truth over the world. And because that is our hope, we get to be joyful. And I think what what a witness to the world when the rest of the world is on fire and divided and fractured over everything politically. If the world can look to the church and scratch their head and say, why in the world are those people laughing and smiling and loving and unified and joy-filled? And we can say, it's because we have a king and a kingdom. And we are sojourners and exiles on this world living a quiet life, but looking forward to Christ on his throne. So brothers and sisters in Christ, let us be hopeful, joyful exiles on this world. Let's stand and pray.